You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to continue in our worship now and go to Hebrews. We've been in our series now for a handful of weeks. We've got several more, but we're making great progress and uh, learning a lot. I'd love to hear just how uh, God has been speaking to you over the course of these last few months as we've been in the book of Hebrews. It's so encouraging to hear... um, how God's working in your life and how he's speaking to you as you interact with God's word on Sunday or at home or through your life groups. And so if you have an encouraging word or even a challenge, something that has been, that you've been wrestling with, um, I'd love to hear, just love to encourage you and, and kind of walk that path with you. Well, we're going to read uh, chapter seven, just the uh, first few, few verses, and then uh, we're going to skip over to the, the last. And so we're kind of going to get the beginning of chapter seven and, and the end to kind of encapsulate the Um, the story here of a mysterious man that maybe many of you haven't heard of, uh, but we'll get to know him a little bit today. Let's uh, read in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils, And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. So the book of Hebrews, uh, I've been preaching for, actually this year marks 20 years of regular preaching almost every Sunday in the year, and I've never preached through the book of Hebrews uh, for a couple reasons. One, it's, it's passages like this, honestly, <laughs> that are just difficult to understand. It intimidates me. There's a lot of challenging themes. Uh, secondly, in the book of Hebrews, there's so many themes that taken at face value, just don't resonate with today's culture and the American culture. 
I mean, there's a lot of mention of priesthood and covenant and tabernacle and sacrifices and angels and Moses and blood offerings and kingdoms and more things like this. And it just doesn't seem to resonate. Today's passage is one of those great examples of items that just like this that just don't seem to resonate. Even as we're reading that, you may be thinking, what is this? And why does it matter? The author spends an entire chapter right here in in the middle of his letter, an entire chapter worth of ink, talking about an ancient priest called Melchizedek, this ancient priest king who lived 2,000 years ago. And in fact, everything that has ever been written about this one priest king, Melchizedek, is contained in this one chapter. He's mentioned briefly in Genesis and in one verse in the Psalms, and both Genesis and Psalms are quoted in this chapter. And so everything that we ever known about this man, you've heard today. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about him. Why? Why does this matter? Should we shrug it off? Should we just say, let's, let's, let's move on to something more relevant, more important? But here we are, we take an entire chapter to do it. God's word is written, as we've learned, for our instruction, for our maturity, for our strengthening. It's, it's written for our good. And so there's some reason why this has been preserved for us for over 2,000 years, to learn about this mysterious, shadowy figure that appeared to Abraham over 2,000 years ago. Seems like someone wants us to know about Melchizedek. And so we're going to learn about him today. You know, there's a, there a movie about 20 years ago called uh, Memento. It was uh, written by Christopher Nolan. You know, Christopher Nolan did a lot of the, the, the Dark Knight uh, Batman movies. He did mind-bending movies like Inception and Interstellar. So if you like mind-bending, confusing thrillers, like he's the guy for you. And this Memento was just like that. It was so weird. Uh, th- it was so weird because of the, the movement of the plot. And here is how it happened. The movie starts at the end. And then it ends at the beginning. So the plot develops. It actually doesn't develop. It goes in reverse. The movie starts, and it's like the end of the movie, and it rewinds. And so the entire movie, you're saying, what is happening? What is happening? What is going on? Who is that? Why is this important? And then it's like watching a movie with one of your kids, right? Who is that? What happened? I don't know. I haven't seen it. Let's watch it together. (laughs) And, And then you get to the end, and the future catches up with the past, And then in this amazing moment of climax at the end of the movie, which is actually the beginning of the story, it all makes sense and ties together. Melchizedek means nothing until Jesus comes on the scene. And the writer of Hebrews is the only one who has recorded the connection between this mysterious man and Jesus. And when Jesus comes on the scene and the writer of Hebrews connects it with Melchizedek, it makes beautiful sense that we can't ignore it anymore. What we learn about this connection is so powerful, so meaningful, so beautiful. It's so, it teaches us more than, than many stories and characters in all the Bible about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Some passages really bend your mind. Some things happened a long time ago that made no sense. And then Jesus comes along and it makes perfect sense. Melchizedek is one of those guys. 
he turns out to be one of the most instructive figures in the entire Bible, helping us to see who Jesus is, what he is like, and what he came to do. We'll look at Melchizedek and how he foreshadows Christ, but we look at him with the full knowledge of Christ and his coming and what he came to do in light of this figure who foreshadows him and predicts him. And so we look at a foreshadowing of Christ's character through the life of Melchizedek, his qualifications, and ultimately his blessing. Let's look at this foreshadow of Christ's character. Now, some of this might continue to be a little mind-bending for us, and it requires a little bit of mental work as we look at God's word and really stretch our mind to understand this shadowy, mysterious figure. Uh, in Genesis, a long time ago, he is, he, we learn of him through an encounter that he has with Abraham. Abraham, you know, he's not just the father of the Hebrew people. He was actually a, a war hero. He was, um, he, was, he was the hero of God's people, Father Abraham. And at the pinnacle of his life, the pinnacle of his blessing, the pinnacle of his fame, he is approached by this priest king that we know very little about in Genesis chapter 14. And here is what we read in chapter 14 of Genesis. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I am not kidding when I say that's all the information we have about Melchizedek. That's it. 2,000 years later, here we are talking about him. One reason is something profoundly that we know about his character, his unique character. His name means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace. And within one man, we see something unique that we haven't seen before, the complete and exhaustive pronouncement of a man who is righteous and the king of peace, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Regarding peace, he has this unique character. Salem comes from the word, the Hebrew word shalom. That's a little bit more familiar. Shalom is, it, we know shalom, it means peace, but much more than that. It's God's divine and comprehensive plan for all of creation. It's his perfect design. In short, the shalom of God is God's will and purpose for things to be as they ought to be. God creating things as they ought to be, as he intended for them to be. Things perfectly perfect in every way. Regarding righteousness, he also bears this unique character, this unique characteristic. He's called the king of righteousness. Righteousness is this quality of being morally pure, morally right. Imagine bearing that name. Imagine if your name meant king of righteousness. You know, I, I saw this shirt recently that said, to save time, let's just assume that I'm right. You know, another one that said, I'm not arguing with you, I'm just explaining why I'm right. So there's people that wear shirts like that, but then there's people that actually are like that. And there's a difference. <laughs> Some of you have that shirt, I know it. <laughs> he, he wasn't the kind of guy who wore the shirt or even bore the name. He was the kind of guy who embodied this characteristic. Full of righteousness. King of righteousness. He was a man of such character, so reputable, and so distinct, that Abraham would give him a tenth of all that he had. 
that Abraham knew and recognized the superiority of this man before him. He didn't give him the scraps. He didn't give the last tenth. The tenth was to give uh, from your wealth the best of what you had. Off of the top, not off like what was left over after you spent everything. It was the top, the best, the choicest of everything that you had. And this was Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch of God's people, the war hero at the height of his reputation and, and glory. And he recognizes Melchizedek and he gives him a tenth of everything. This was, re, this was before, it's good to remember this, it was, this is actually before the, the law required a tenth, that God's people would give a tenth to the, to the priesthood, to the priest for God's people. This is before that law. So he did this not because he was required to, he did it because out of a calculated recognition that he was in the presence of someone greater than himself, and the tithe demonstrated that Abraham knew in all ways possible he was in the presence of someone far superior. There was no one superior to Abraham in the Old Testament. There was no, at this time, there was no one. Abraham was it. He was the one that received the, the promise of God. He, he had the, the promise of God, and, and God said, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And here we see him actually recognizing someone else and saying, no, you're actually more superior than me. In the priestly uh, office belonged to the Levites. It would, become, it would belong to the Levites. And, and Melchizedek also bears two other names or two other titles. He is called priest and he is also called king. And the priestly office belonged to the Levites for the people of God. By law, they had a law that said you can't be king and priest at the same time because it was too much of a concentration of power. Imagine the President of the United States occupying all branches of government as its head. Uh, he would have all power, all authority, uh, do whatever he wants. There's a reason why we have checks and balances in our government. It's set up that way to protect. And the Levites saw this as well. You can't be king and priest at the same time. Melchizedek, he occupied both of the most important offices for the people of God, and he was worthy of them both, king and priest, perfectly. The combination of righteousness, the combination of peace, king and priest was so unique, it was actually prophesied that there would only be one person that would come, it would actually be the Messiah that would come, that would occupy both of those offices. No one could do it, it was against the law, but one would come who would occupy both of those offices. Jesus would be called the, king, the Prince of Peace. He would be called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Most High Priest. He would be called the King of Righteousness. He was the only person to live a perfectly righteous life according to the law of God. Jesus is the only one in whom we see perfect peace and righteousness where it could be found. He's the only one that could give us peace. He says, I give you peace not as the world gives it. I give you peace that is, that is everlasting. He says, I give you righteousness, the righteousness that he earned through his perfect obedience. He gives to those who trust in him. And in the opening chapter of Hebrews, we saw the very few, first few verses. We are told that Jesus has the final word. He is the final word of God, acting as the final prophet for God's people. And so here in, these first, in Hebrews, we see now that Jesus occupies every office in God's kingdom, prophet, priest, and king. 
and does it fully with perfect righteousness and purity and truth and love. And when Melchizedek comes on the scene, it's strange that he occupies these couple offices, that he's called the king of righteousness, that he's called the king of peace. It's, he doesn't fit into any category, but then when Jesus comes along, we see why he came along. He was a foreshadow of what we were to come to expect, what Jesus would be like. He wouldn't be just another earthly king that was able to protect in certain ways. He wasn't, able, he wasn't coming to just give peace in a modest way. He would be one that would come and end all other kingdoms, all other priesthoods, all other messages from God, he would fulfill it all. Jesus is the only one in whom can be found perfect truth, perfect peace, perfect care, perfect protection. So when, God word, when God's word tells us of a savior who would come in the order of Melchizedek, we are meant to look for a redeemer who would come, who would have full authority, but also full peace and righteousness and goodness within him. So this is why Melchizedek is so important, and this is why it's so beautiful how the, the writer of Hebrews connects these two things for us. It's to transform and kind of reorient the way we think about Christ and the, and the gifts that he gives and what he brings. Going deeper into his character, we see that not only a foreshadow of his character, but we see his qualifications Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now this is strange. He's talking about this earthly human figure, Melchizedek. No beginning, no end, no father, no mother. Like I said, everything that you know about Melchizedek, you're now up to speed on everything everybody else has ever known about the man. Where did he come from? Who knows? Who's his mom and dad? We aren't told. Who made him priest? Uh, we don't know. Did he die? Uh, not sure. <laughs> Where was he born? None of that information we have. All priests were chosen by the Levitical line. So they, they had to come from the genealogy of Aaron. That's what made you a priest. They had to come from this heritage, this royal, royal priesthood is what it's called, of the Aaron, Aaron's line. But Melchizedek didn't have that. Instead, he was appointed by God. It was different. All these priests, one after another, come from the line of Aaron. And then Melchizedek comes on the scene, not from any of that. Why? Because he was appointed by God. In this way, even Jesus' family can be traced back to Judah, but we, we know he didn't occupy the office of priesthood because he came from the line of Aaron. We know he occupies the office of priesthood because he was appointed by God to do so. Just like Melchizedek, all priests had an end. An end meaning they served time limits. 30 years you could serve as a priest and that was it. Melchizedek appeared, then he disappeared. We know nothing of his beginning or end. He didn't have term limits and neither does Jesus. When we look at Melchizedek, didn't have, he didn't have beginning or end. He didn't have any genealogy. We are meant to look at Christ and say, well, what's his priesthood like? He has no end. The silence of the biblical record regarding Melchizedek's days suggest this continuous priesthood of Melchizedek that foreshadows what perfectly was and is fulfilled by Jesus. Our forever priest, the one who continually and forever intercedes for us. 
who ministers to us continually without interruption, Genesis presents a priest for the first time that seems to not be bound by space or time or human limits. And then we are told that's who you're supposed to look for. That is who Christ will be. No one has ever seen this connection until the writer of Hebrews points it out. And he says, this is what we have in Jesus. We have one who is full of righteousness and peace. And we have one who intercedes for us and ministers to us continually and without end. Without end. No limit to his care for us. The author of Hebrews, his heart is full. And he's wanting to pour this out for his listeners He's wanting to make this connection and really stir in their hearts, not just information that's important, but how it impacts our life and how we view our relationship with God. He wants our hearts to be full as well because they are in the midst of difficulty in their lives. They're in the midst of a lot of sadness, a lot of stress, a lot of persecution, and and many of them are in, uh, their lives are a threat of of being killed or, or beaten or imprisoned. At the very least, they're just stressed out beyond all imagination. And so he's entering in, and he's not just giving them a history lesson. He's wanting them to know the kind of God who loves them. He's wanting to talk to people who lack peace and tell them about the God of peace who is with them. He's wanting to reach out to people who who know that they lack righteousness because they are They're weary, and their weariness is causing them to doubt their faith, and they're on the verge of rebellion. They're on the verge of just giving up. And God is, and and he's telling them, let me tell you about the king of righteousness who loves you, who has lived the life for you, has perfected God's obedience and law for you. That perfection is no longer the, the, is not the means of your acceptance, but you are accepted in spite of your failures. It's for the ones who feel alone and feel like they have no one to go to and talk to. And he says, let me tell you about a priest who's ministering to you right now through the Holy Spirit and will never stop. No matter where you go, you are never alone. He wants to show us that even the greatest people in our lives seem to come and go, but Jesus' ministry never will leave us. Greatest people, the most important people, the, the most powerful people, the, most, the people that you think, if, you're, if you leave, I don't know what I would do. God says even there's, there's not permanence to even those people. Everything is temporary. But Christ is enduring. He's forever. People come and go, but Jesus' ministry endures without end. And as incredible and superior as the, the qualifications of Christ and his character are amazing, they are actually not even the main thrust of this passage. The climax of this comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek doesn't rest on his character or his qualifications, but it is on the blessing that he gives. Look at the foreshadow of Christ's blessing as we look at this third part in verse 7. It is, here's what the author says. It's beyond dispute. Everyone knows right? That the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham comes to Melchizedek. He is approached. Melchizedek comes and blesses him in in, in a tremendous act of condescension. This superior 
shadowy, mystical, creature-like person, superhuman-like, comes and he blesses Abraham. And it's beyond dispute that this is what he is doing. The one who is greater is actually blessing the one who is inferior. Seems like it should be the other way around. Like those who are looking up at authority should be the ones that bless and that give and 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 render um, all kinds of affirmation. But here we see it the opposite. When you read, when you and I read of the superior blessing the inferior, you don't have to think long before you are face to face with Jesus and how he deals with you and I through the gospel. This is the very essence of the gospel. The very essence of the gospel is the superior blessing the inferior. Jesus' ultimate example is that he is superior to us. He is holy. He is perfect. He has been tempted as you and I have been tempted, yet without sin. And we have failed. We have rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. We come before God, and, 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 and who could stand before God with full confidence, knowing the sins we've committed? None of us could. And so we are in a position of inferiority before God. He is in a position of superiority to God. And how does he deal with that? He lays down his life and dies for us. Jesus is infinitely glorious. He is greater than all things and all people for all time. We've said that probably now 30 times this this series. This has been repeated over and over again. He is superior in every way. His love, his compassion, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his humility and joy and courage and loyalty, his majesty and holiness are all without blemish. He is perfect in peace and perfect in righteousness, utterly perfect in every way. Yet this perfect one looks to you and I, imperfect, blemished, rebellious, lazy, and he blesses us. He blesses us. He gives us life. How does he bless Look at verse 27. How does he bless? He has no end like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Priests would bring offerings, right? They would go into the temple, they would bring offerings, but before they brought an offering for the sins of the people, they had to bring an offering for their own sins because human priests were humanly sinful. So they had to offer a sacrifice first to purify themselves. God would receive that sacrifice and forgive their sins, and then they could actually then make a sacrifice that was acceptable for God's people. Jesus didn't have to make an offering for himself because he was perfect already, and so he gave his life for the sins of his people. He offered up himself. The greatest issues in life that you and I will face really can be summed up in these two questions. How do you handle painful things when people hurt you? And how do you handle sinful things that you have done to other people? And those two things will direct our lives. How you react when you are betrayed, when you are hurt, and how you react when you hurt others. Everything, every direction that you've taken in life can kind of follow a couple of those questions and situations. Much of our life, my life and your life, is directed by how we respond to those simple questions. And the world will offer a, a very therapeutic response and solution to those problems. 
a solution that focuses on optimizing our comfort and avoiding emotional suffering. Whatever we can do to get to a place of safety and comfort, then that's what we need to do. More and more, the world is offering and experiencing the failure of this approach. And even secular world is wondering, maybe comfort's not the goal. Maybe emotional uh, or, or, or psychological and emotional suffering is helpful in some ways. And it's against this backdrop of all the things that are wrong in the world and all the things that are wrong in us that we see the solution of the world that, that, is, that fails time and time again and we are presented what Jesus brings. Verse 25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason that Jesus is greater, it rests in his ability to deal with our inward sins. The reason he is greater is his ability to deal with the wrongs that are done to us. Through his permanent priesthood and his perfect sacrifice. His permanent priesthood and his perfect sacrifice. Our text argues emphatically that Jesus is able to save us. How? To the uttermost who, those who draw near to God. How? To the uttermost. What does that mean? I, I don't know. I've never used that word. I think we know what it means. It's translated uttermost. It means this it's actually only used one other time in, in all the New Testament. It's a unique word. It combines this idea of completeness and eternity. Totally and forever. How does Jesus save us? Totally and forever. Additionally, the words here allow for no possibility of us supplementing anything towards that end. What can we give for our total and forever salvation? What can we offer? Nothing. Nothing. This is when Jesus saves to the uttermost, it means salvation belongs to God and alone comes from him and is an act of his grace and mercy. We don't add to our salvation. It's his work from beginning to end. It's thoroughly gracious. We come to him. We believe him. All who come to God, recognizing our hopelessness apart from him, recognizing his righteousness and perfection, recognizing his sacrifice on the cross for us, we rest in him, we trust, we believe in him. That means whoever you are, whatever you have done, no matter how shameful your sin, whether it's murder, infidelity, perversion, betrayal, cheating, lying, jealousy, gossip, whatever it is, Christ can save us totally and forever. Completely and for all eternity. Another observation on this concept is that Christ is able to save to the other most, which means it's actually in the present tense. A lot of times when we think about the salvation of God for us, when I say Jesus loves you, we think of the past sins that we have been forgiven of. But this has a, there's continuity to this. There's a continuing reality of the salvation of Christ the reference is not just to that initial experience of being saved. It refers to this perpetual experience of being saved. His sacrifice is sufficient for your past sins and your day-to-day, moment-by-moment needs for how long? <laughs> Completely and forever. 
Well, what about tomorrow when you need them? What about the next day when you need them? What, what, what about next week or year when you, when you fall into some kind of moral error? Will God be enough for you then? Will he care for you then? You know, in my spiritual weakness at times convinces me that Christ's intercession for me is not moment by moment, but it's intermittent, right? Maybe you feel that way as well. You know, when I grow weary of praying, um, so does Jesus grow weary of me. When I fail to walk by faith, maybe Jesus takes a break from me. When I neglect to pursue Christ through his word, maybe he focuses on somebody else for a little while and waits for me to come back. As our great high priest, Jesus' contact with the Father is unbroken. This is why he said it would be better for him to go into heaven, into glory, to sit at the right hand of the Father so he could send the Holy Spirit to us to indwell us, his presence with us, so that he can intercede for us in an unbroken fashion. Constantly, not intermittently. His love for us is not intermittent based on our life and character. He takes our imperfect prayers. He takes our weaknesses in our lives. He takes our half-hearted efforts to know and love him, and he perfects them. He cleans them up and perfects them and offers them to the Father in absolute praise because of his righteous life. It's amazing that we sinners could be seen by God and treated by God in this way. So who gets this? Who gets this blessing? Is it every, anybody? Our passage is clear and the Bible is clear. All who come all who draw near to God through Christ. All who draw near to God through Christ. True blessing now and forever comes only through acknowledging Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Jesus taught us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We must come to Jesus realizing that he alone offers the the, the spiritual food that we need, the, the, secu- the, the rescue from our sin, the forgiveness of sin, the, the growth in our relationship with God, we come to him knowing that he is our only hope, that we're fully dependent on him. This causes us to repent of our sins, confess them to God, recognize our failures, coming to God and crying out for his mercy. It, it, it allows us to be like Abraham that says, My life is yours and everything I have is yours. Take the best that I have, not the worst. Here's a tenth before. There's no requirement of this, but as as an acknowledgement that God is superior to us. And we stand before him as inferior. We stand before him as ones who give him worship and allegiance, our very lives, everything that we have. And we seek it in other ways. We're tempted to seek it in other ways. We're tempted to seek peace in so many ways through entertainment, through ambition, through materialism, through romance and sensuality, through work, through people just seeking desperately to to live a quiet, restful life of serenity. We struggle all the time. But only God is our king of peace. Only Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is our king of righteousness who takes away the judgment of God that we deserve. He removes our shame and guilt. He clothes us with his perfect love. Melchizedek is pretty amazing, but Jesus is greater. We are told of this man so that we can look at Christ and see 
how unique he is and the unique role that he plays in our life, the unique function of God that he operates in, and the unique blessing that he gives. We have everything in him. Draw near to him. Draw near to him. Give him your life. Receive his blessing and truly experience his righteousness and peace.